welcome to Through the Keyhole, home of the Association of Laparoscopic Surgeons of Great Britain and Ireland podcasts, putting innovation, technology and training at the heart of modern surgery. And welcome to the next episode of Through the Keyhole, the ALS GBI podcast. And today, myself, Lydia and Lucy are joined by Sia Lodia, who is a General Surgical Registrar in South West London. And she's currently doing an MD in Sustainability and Surgery. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Very excited to be here. I uh, listened to a few of your latest pods. So yeah, um, sounds like it's uh, going to be a fun Thing to be part of. And morning Lucy. Morning Lydia, morning Sia, thanks for joining us and what an interesting topic we've got to talk about this morning. So yeah I mean we've been waiting to have someone on the, on the podcast to talk about the environment and surgery and how that all comes together for a long time haven't we Lydia um, and kind of through a contact we've been put in touch with Sia so, Sia, do you want to just introduce yourself and say a little bit about what you're doing at the moment? Um, so, yeah, as Lydia said, I'm General Surgical Registrar and then it's just luck really that I, through word of mouth, heard about a sustainability MD project that they wanted to start at the Royal Surrey, um, linked to the University of Surrey. So I applied for it because I thought it's very topical, it's something that we're all going to have to evolved to in the next few years and with the NHS um, net zero targets something needs to be done so I joined that about a year ago now and yeah the project's really coming on so my basic project what I'm looking at is the attitudes of staff in theatres and the barriers and enablers to actually implementing sustainable practices because the research has been going on for probably about 10-15 years now and we've got a lot of research proven things that we should be implementing in theatres. I'm not sure if you know, but generally the NHS is four to five percent of the carbon footprint of England. Wow. And from that, operating theatres are estimated to be 60 to 70 percent um, of all hospital waste. So it's a really big area to focus on. But looking around theatres that I've worked in and talking to people, no one really thinks that people are that worried about sustainability these research proven things haven't really been implemented so I think yeah looking at the staff attitudes barriers and enablers is somewhere where we can understand why these implementation changes haven't happened. It's really amazing that you've come straight to that and that's what your research is on because in preparation for this podcast I was chatting chatting around <laughs> about people's you know, attitudes to sustainability and a green theatre and one of my anaesthetic friends said, why don't you ask her all of the things that we've come up with through the new like intercollegiate Royal College of Surgeons green theatre checklist and everything anyone talks about with green theatres is pretty simple and achievable. Yet there just seems to be so many barriers to it. And he asked me to ask you, what, what do you think those barriers are and how do we overcome them? Which maybe we will come on to a bit later. 
but yeah amazing that you've opened with that really so I've been lucky in that so I've um, conducted sort of interviews on staff groups so that's clinical staff as well as sort of management staff so procurement finance estates so not only do I have their answers to use but I've also myself tried to implement a modified sort of green checklist so I've then seen firsthand what I believe the staff barriers are firstly leadership there's currently you know every trust has what they call a green plan but mainly it's people who already have a full-time job in the NHS who are already stretched, who are told to be the green leader on top of that. So it's not anyone's primary focus. It's something that they have to do additionally and they don't have the time or resources to actually put the work in and really make it all come together. It's if you go to these meetings, they're like, oh, this hasn't happened, this has happened. And it's hard to action it because there's not a team of people doing the work so we don't have the right leadership in all the areas at the moment it's sort of running on really passionate people and then people who are studying it for more research um so that's leadership within the hospital and then also leadership or sort of change in policy top down so currently although we have these targets there's no benefits of hitting them for a hospital so obviously financially to buy they are easy switches and overall financially they probably a lot of them will save money um, with energy and just because of reusable things you can use more often but initially there is an upfront cost and it's hard for the finance department to think oh let's put the money into that when they've got so many other things to do when there's no initiatives of how much we should be spending on sustainability at the moment it's just we should all be thinking about it rather than actually uh, this is where it should be going. So those two are quite linked. And then just a very basic one, really, education and awareness. So it's good to see at the moment medical school curriculums have started to introduce sustainability actually as a module that these students learn and they sort of all through, it's not just like one module in one year, they do it preclinical and clinical years. But then obviously these students come into the hospital and they don't see anything that they're taught being practiced and that's because most clinicians don't know what we should be practicing because we're not taught about it so there's this sort of knowledge gap divide of people might want to do it but they don't know how there's no sort of publicity of what we should be doing the only thing really is you know you see we recycle more but other than that people aren't really keeping us up to date on what really helps and then staff time like the NHS is so stressed at the moment and so overworked learning how to use new products or trying to do some research into how to be environmentally better is hard so yeah a lot of different barriers there I mean like there's so many things for you to like have to target aren't there I mean how what are you going to focus on or will you try to tap into all of those areas what what will your years look Um, like do you So my research, I've had to obviously try and tackle some of them to bring in the checklist myself. And a lot of that, I'm quite naive having always been a clinician. I didn't really understand how the management side of the NHS worked and all Mm. the protocols and all the people you need to involve. And and so it's been a big learning curve there. And it's been very interesting to see how a hospital actually works and who orders stuff and the budget and things. So that's more of just a knowledge and awareness that I can then share with other people if they want to in hospitals. With the actual barriers to my invitation, I'm not I'm not actually focused on changing anything. I'm basically re-interviewing staff. So I did them before I implemented 
now that I've implemented, I've kind of left it alone. And then I interview them at the midpoint and then I interview them at the end to see if their attitudes have changed at all. And if those attitudes then liaise up with how successful the checklist was. And once I've done that full research, then we can make recommendations of how to sort of overcome these barriers. But at the moment, it's still quite new and fresh. And I'm not really in a position to say, oh, this is what you do and it will definitely be successful. I need to. Yeah, sort of... I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what your results show, because I was even last night just reading about in particular. So the use of non-sterile gloves and how I think probably since COVID, we've all become so used to putting gloves on for almost everything Um, in particular intensive care there's like a really big push now to try and reduce the use of non-sterile gloves and it's exactly what you're saying isn't it it's not the actual act that's difficult it's just changing the habit and the culture and almost having a habit is almost worse than a culture we all know how hard it is just to give up a habit (laughs) and that's just one habit let alone Mm. one that everyone's doing around you every single day and one where you probably think you're doing the right thing or you're a bit unsure if it's the right thing or not to be doing. So certainly that was something that I found quite interesting because it's just become automatic, a lot of these things now that we do, you know, putting things in the wrong bin. No one really knows what bin to put it in. And there's there's just no excuse for it. <laughs> no, but then, I mean, if you aren't taught, it is difficult because, I mean, yeah. packaging changes, like some plastics you can recycle, some you can't. So it is you really have to stay on top of it. And if it's not made easy for you in theatres, if you don't have all four bins, people aren't going to go for a walk to try and find the right bin. Like, yeah. I understand why it's not done correctly, because yeah. people don't have the time or the drive or the incentive. The glove thing is very interesting. Like, gosh, you're doing a gloves yeah. um, off study. And I've sort of, I've introduced it in my checklist as when we slide the patient from when they're asleep to onto the table, we shouldn't be wearing gloves. So just even if that one encounter a day, two to three times a day can reduce five people wearing gloves Mm. or at least monitor how many people then listen to that, we can start. When Lydia and I spoke about this, well, we thought about doing, you know, something in sustainability and theatre many moons ago, but never really got around to it, as you do. But I remember you said, Lydia, you know, one basic thing would be instead of using incos to wrap people's arms, you use pillowcases that then can go in the wash and be used again, for example. So that's just one example. So just to bring the discussion back a few steps, what kind of things, can you give us a summary of some of the most important things in theatre that are easy and simple that we could be doing to be green? Sure. So the one that would have a big impact but I'm not able really to touch because obviously it's a structural thing is obviously the energy and lighting um so that we haven't focused on at all but just on that 56 percent of the week the theatre isn't used and most theatres around the country will probably still have their lights on and their thermoregulation set to the perfect temperature you know theatres can get sensors in for lights and the regulation where they can control so that it's not warming or keeping at that temperature that would be really helpful water so we're trying we're doing the first scrub of the day is still a normal scrub but every scrub after that unless your hands are visibly soiled we can use alcohol hand gel and that sort of who guidance is all proven, infection rates are completely the same, if not better, using alcohol hand gel. It will save a million litres of water per hospital per year. And it's also cheaper and quicker. So there's really, it's all benefits. And that's something so simple to put in. 
and then anaesthetic room. So anaesthesia is contributes to 5% of the carbon footprint of the hospital. And of all the inhaled gases, desflurane is the one that's sort of the most toxic. It's 2,500 times worse than CO2. Um, most hospitals now are starting to just completely cut desflurane out, which we have done. But also we're trying to move more to IV anaesthesia. Where we do have inhaled anaesthesia, we've bought gas capture machines to actually capture those gases um, that are released out from the patient and then those can be neutralised. So that's quite mm -hmm. good. Reusable instruments, so that can be reusable ling uh, blades, reusable laryngoscopes, reusable slide sheets, which you just wash. That's probably all the prep. We've tried to measure even like the amount of propofol people use so just better communication between anaesthetists and surgeons so they don't have to open that new 50 mil vial and then end up wasting some mm -hmm. then we move to the theatre and we've asked all of our surgeons like you know to exactly what they need in a set so we can streamline the set so we're not sending unnecessary things and unnecessary sizes to be sterilized Interestingly, though, it's not, and this is what everyone thinks, that they think, oh, you should only have on a set what you use all the time. And if you use something maybe one in 10 times, one in 20 times, don't have it on the set, open it separately. There has been research to show even if you use something maybe one in 20 times, it's worth it being on the set and sterilised in that capacity than the life cycle analysis of the one-time use. So anything that, say, in colorectal surgery, needle holders, we've got on our set even though we don't use them all the time, it's worth having them there than having to open them separately. So it's just with the surgeons, there's a lot of communication, understanding what they need in their operations to try and make the sets as good as possible. We've mm -hmm. got better suction devices, gloves off, and we've got theatre caps for everyone that are reusable and that's got everyone's sort of name on and their sort of job title. Uh, we've got reusable gowns, reusable drapes, and we've got reusable clip appliers. So yeah, there's wow. little things you can do everywhere. <laughs> reusable trocars. Yeah. Really I, mean, I think I would say that, you know, having been to various hospitals along the way, each of them do do one of these things, yeah. but never all of these things. <laughs> Just a question about the alcohol hand gel. So is that the one that's it, it's a specialist one for the theatre? It's not like yeah. an end of bed hand gel, is no, it? No. no, no. There are like no. there are a few brands out there that are for yeah. they're they're instead of scrubbing, not just normal alcohol hand gel. They yeah. are available on NHS supply chain. So that's not even a difficult change. It's not a grant it's not asking people they're all approved they're on the supply chain anyone can order them in and just switch wow okay. and on that line I remember once being slightly challenged by somebody with um the use of the the hand gel because it's more of a liquid isn't it the one that we use for in theatre that hand gel that's very watery and I was saying you know we don't need to wash our hands each time we can use this and they said well if you turn the tap off in between each time you wash your hands and don't leave it running the amount of energy used with that is less than it is to create the alcohol gel, package it, dispose of the, the bottle in the end. I obviously didn't know what, what was right. Is it is it better to create, produce, package and dispose of that alcohol gel than it is just to keep turning the tap off every time? That's quite an interesting question. I'm not just I don't know if there's actually been a study comparing turning it off every time. 
Um, but also it's not just about the water wasted, it's about the heating of the water. So I don't think there's been a slowdown. I'll do some research on it afterwards. But the fact that on the intercollegiate checklist they've endorsed the hand gel. Yeah. And the fact that the who are now endorsing the hand gel, I think that's sort of the way we're going. Because yeah. otherwise, you know, a lot of people have sensors, so the water doesn't keep dripping. And even, yeah, exactly. even they've point. said, oh, we should be switching. Yeah. So I can't imagine it's still better, but yeah. <laughs> I guess it's better um, than not turning off. Um the opening of sets uh, is a really interesting one because we'll all be really familiar with a set gets opened you get to start the operation and the consultant says, oh, no, I, I didn't want that one. I wanted this one. How far should we be going to just kind of making do with what we've got? Or should we be getting exactly what we want? So, again, I'm very lucky because obviously I'm my focus is within the colorectal theatres and I've got four very understanding consultants of the project. They're all very on board with the project. So, they're generally not the type of surgeons who are like, oh no, slightly wrong, get me the bigger one, change it. They do make do. Mm. And I think having that culture of knowing that a surgeon is going to make do, that means that the nurses aren't opening stuff just in case, they're not as stressed. So overall, there is less waste. Obviously, if those surgeons then turn around one day and say, oh, I can't operate with this, I need something else, patient safety has to come first. You have to trust that your surgeon understands the sustainability, but also is never putting that in front of a safe operation yeah. for his patient. Yeah. But I think it's the level of understanding a lot of certain. I mean, when these supplies come in, there's no universal. It's not like, you know, a washing machine where it says energy efficient A or energy efficient D. They'll come in and they'll have their own study and they'll have their own carbon footprint. And you won't know if that's a full life cycle analysis or if that's just a short what it is to use. And it's hard to compare all the products to know what is more common, beneficial or not. So it's hard for them to pick a product in relation to sustainability. Generally, they should all understand that swapping during a case isn't great, opening stuff unnecessarily isn't great. But if that happens one off, and it makes them feel safer and it makes them think patient safety is better. I think that's absolutely fine. You can't be sort of jeopardising that. I think it's more what they choose to use all the time and the culture in theatre that's going to make the long term changes. So and in terms of the checklist that you, you're mentioning, so for the listeners, so hopefully some of the listeners will be familiar with the intercollegiate green theatre checklist. That was It was probably released like six months ago, six months yeah, a year ago. It was um, December, yeah, I think it was pretty released. And that's to kind of complement the WHO, you know, at hospitals' discretion, whether they want to use it and ind- individuals as well. So how do you think that's going? And what does your checklist add that this checklist doesn't have? And when is your checklist going to kind of come to fruition? <laughs> so my, my checklist isn't like to add anything. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the exact same concept. It's the fact that research has been done. We don't need to prove that these things are better. We just need to bring them in. My checklist specifically focuses on what to do within the colorectal theatre. So where <laughs> the intercollegiate one will say replace certain instruments or reuse certain instruments I won't just have one line for that I'll have the five instruments that we've replaced so yeah they're being reminded every time there are certain things obviously that 
they've asked to do, which we can't do in our resectional cases, like they've said, try to avoid catheterization, try to avoid antibiotics if you don't need them, but we do. So there's certain things that aren't applicable. But I think mm -hmm. that's the thing. It's a checklist that can be modified according to the operation, according to the specialty, according to the hospital. In mm -hmm. terms of how it's going, I don't know if the Royal College are collecting data on people, I don't know, telling them if they're using it. But I've had a lot of interest when people have heard that I'm putting in a checklist because people have said I've not heard anyone using this checklist. So I'm not sure how it's going. I don't know if it's formed a base for other people's research, but mm -hmm. I've not heard of any hospitals or any theatres or operating rooms saying, oh, we've we've taken on that checklist. We're using it. OK. And what do you think needs to happen in terms of. Well, the way I was thinking about it was should. and it being green and sustainable and having that slant to way, the way you approach your day is everyone's responsibility. However, we do need some leaders in this and we need, you know, as you say, it might be something that's just added to a consultant's workload and really, you know, they're trying all that they can, but they either haven't got the time to kind of push for it, you know, or just, just really changing people's attitudes and being there to kind of guide people is just, they can't do all those things. So who do you think you know, what, what would the ideal infrastructure be in terms of people to in, in, in one hospital to kind of really put green and sustainable surgery at a top priority? It's a really difficult one, one that we've spoken about quite a lot sort of internally. So it's working out whether you need actually someone external coming in at the beginning to see where all the issues are, see where the changes can be made, doing like independent analysis rather than someone that's swayed by other things to then put in the changes. But then obviously, as you say, you need someone there to motivate people to keep those changes on board. Mm. So definitely someone in, I think almost in all forms. So you need someone, an ODP, you need an anaesthetist, you need a surgeon, you need someone in finance that's actually willing to put the sustainability side first or prioritise it or the money saved in sustainability, re-put it back into sustainability. You need people in your procurement teams who understand how to see if a product is more sustainable or understand if the company we're using is sustainable because every company now has a green plan so we can see whether we're using the right companies. I definitely can't tell you exactly who we need and what teams. It's no. just, it's not been done enough for us to even see whether it's successful, if it's too much yeah if it's not enough yeah we almost need like one hospital to act as the guinea pig to try and let's try and yeah. really get this right in this hospital and yeah as you say have kind of you know like secret shoppers that come into shops and yeah. kind of check how they're doing it and have the same in someone looking at how green we're being um I noticed that Birmingham have recently done a net zero uh their first net zero operation Yes. So, so in order to do that, it's amazing they did it, but, you know, they had to cycle to work to offset yeah. the carbon themselves. So I don't think that's very personally sustainable, but it's great yeah. that they're looking into it. And they've done it as well. And how do you feel, you know, the target for the NHS to be net zero by 2040? Is that is that an achievable target, do you think? It's quite soon. Yes, it's very soon. I mean, I don't want to be pessimistic. You know, the checklist is out, people are doing research, sustainability is mentioned at most conferences now as its own topic that people are aware of. And I think 
if people really got on board and the hospital budget slightly changed and the focus changed, we could do it. Like we know what we need to do. It's just tricky at the moment with balancing waiting lists and, you know, all the stuff after the COVID pandemic. And it's it's about shifting our focus or at least some people's focus to fully try for sustainability. Because it's not completely unachievable, but if we don't put more research time, energy and people into it, then I think it'll be difficult. And what I was reading about is it's to do with the is the emissions that we can control directly by 2024. Mm. Can you just give us a, a kind of summary as to, to what that exactly means, how how our workplace could look like by then if it was to be achieved? So it shouldn't really change anything. It's more the products we're choosing to use okay. and what we do with our products. So when you high temperature incinerate it, it uses a thousand kilograms of CO2 as opposed to low temperature, which is only 450. So there's a lot we can do without even realising or changing our daily practice uh-huh. to bring these emissions down to net zero. It's not sort of, oh, this net zero hospital looks completely different to the hospital back in my day in 2020. It's little changes that actually when people get used to doing it, they wouldn't really even notice. Mm. It's the telephone clinics we're doing. It's inhalers, slight different inhalers have a completely different carbon footprint. It's in geriatric medicine, looking at the tablets people are on, making sure maybe when an elderly person needs transport to come to a hospital, they can access two or three different services rather than having to come every single day on patient transport. It's just being more holistic in every way. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot that's being taught in universities and the new curriculum that isn't really being followed up to us as clinicians currently. Wow, well, it's been really great to chat to you, Sia and Lydia, um, on such an important topic that is relevant to everyone and all of us in and outside work, I think, is the responsibility we have. So we've been speaking to Sia Lodia who's a surgical registrar in the Southwest Thames region, who has a focus um, and is currently doing an MD on sustainability within surgery. We've spoken about her kind of MD research topic, which is to look at the colorectal theatre and how that can specifically become more green. We've talked about the barriers and enablers in theatre towards a a greener theatre environment. Um, And we've talked about kind of infrastructure changes and some of the NHS net zero targets in the future. So thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, We almost need, you know, hours and hours. That that podcast has probably been one of the quickest we've done, it's felt like. So the time's gone so quickly because it's such a big topic. So just to finish, um, if you've listened to our podcasts before, these questions won't be a surprise, but we have a few questions we ask everyone. So to start with, uh, what is your favourite book? doesn't have to be sustainability related, but... It's going to have to be my childhood series of Harry Potter. Read nice. them many times, love them. <laughs> my nieces are now reading them and I love that. Great. Yeah, that's, a, that's a solid pick. And how about um, your favourite surgical instrument? Ooh, um, I had this question before. 
It's definitely not going to be a single use statement, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine the controversy if I said that? <laughs> At the moment, probably the Vanguard harmonic, so it's the normal harmonic, but it gets reprocessed two to three oh. times. It works great and all the surgeons don't notice the difference. So yeah, it's a great product to have. Oh, fantastic. That's yeah. really great. <laughs> and one final question specific to you. If you could just if you could just wish for one change that every single theatre member of staff could adopt kind of in the next year or two that is simple and easy, what would you recommend? Or is that too difficult? There's so many things. Yeah, it's like picking just like one place and going on holiday for the rest of your life. Like, there's just so much to do. I mean, yeah, I love... Yeah, Neil loved the hats. Reusable hats, yeah. The reusable hats. Every, everyone around the yeah, country can have a reusable hat. It works, it's nice. The name, there's name, no name barrier there. And you can get whatever print you want. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Lydia. Thank you, Sia. And thank you very much. We wish you the best luck with your with your research. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining Through the Keyhole. You will find more interesting podcasts in this series, as well as online resources from the ALS GBI at www.alsgbi.org.